and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, we are into the summer months. We've got a lot of interesting things going on in the AMTA community. I'm very excited to discuss the board meeting, which is coming up very soon. As, as we've said on previous board meeting episodes, this is always one of our favorite episodes of the year because we really get to dig into the agenda and talk about some of these issues. So we'll get to a lot of that in, in just a moment. Uh, we, of course, want to congratulate a uh, friend of the pod, Travis Harper, on winning Trial by Combat to cap off uh, a fairly decent, I would say, <laughs> career in the American Mock Trial Association. We are working to schedule a time to chat with Travis. We're super excited to talk to them and hear all about uh, Trial by Combat and just such an incredible uh, you know, way to, to end uh, Travis's mock trial career. Uh, so we're looking forward to that very soon. But of course, the purpose for today's episode is the board meeting, which is occurring if when you're hearing this episode, probably this coming weekend, I believe um, I should have had my calendar up sooner, but I believe it is the weekend of the 15th and 16th of July. So it's coming up very soon. Uh, Drew, before we get into the board meeting, you know, it's been a little while since we've caught up. So how are things with you? That's going pretty well. Um, I will say that the board meeting, I think, always has a special place in my heart as far as our episodes go. I know that this is not one of the most popular. It's one where there's no off chance that you're going to randomly get mentioned in all likelihood. But I think (laughs) it's one that has been important to us just in terms of informing the community about things that are happening. And as we'll get to, I like to believe that there have been some things that we have discussed that have been forces for good that I, I think are in some ways reflected in this. And maybe that is me giving ourselves us a little more credit than we deserve. But I, I'm going to, you know, try to, to, to take credit where I can. Um, <laughs> but I definitely think that this is one where I think our viewership goes down, but the important service that we are providing to the community goes way, way up. I'm just imagining you saying, uh, you know, this is an episode where you're not likely to be heard, you know, to be mentioned in case Western <laughs> tunes in thinking, oh, there's no way they'll talk about us. And then we just talk smack about case Western for right? two minutes or some, some, something random or something like that. What is it with um, you and case Western, by the way? I it's just a meme. We've never said point. a bad thing about case Western. I, I love I, people at case Western. I think the people at case Western are <laughs> wonderful. It's just a, it's just a mock review meme at this point. And I'm just I'm sticking with it. Um, but Fair I totally enough. agree yeah. with you. So much to discuss. A lot of really interesting things to talk about. A um, couple of beginning notes about the meeting, and then we're going to dig into the agenda. First of all, I think most everyone who's listening is probably aware of this. But just in case you're not, if you go to the AMTA website and go to the board of directors tab, you can look at the agenda. So all of the things that we're referencing, we're pulling from that agenda. So if you go to AMTA's website, you go to about you go to board of directors, and then on the right side, you go to meeting agenda and minutes, you will find uh, the link to this year's meeting agenda, which was released recently. And so if you want to follow along with that as you're listening to this episode, not if you're driving, please don't do that that if you're (laughs) driving. But if you're not, follow along, I think, because there's a lot of interesting information in there. Uh, First of all, this is a presidential election year. Uh, It was two years ago now that current president Jonathan Woodward was elected as president-elect, the way it works is you get elected as president-elect, and then you serve a year in that position, the current president's second year, and then you take over the following year. So we will have a new president-elect at this meeting. 
Uh, and then I will kick off this uh, discussion the same way that I've kicked off several more of these discussions that we've had over the last several years of the podcast, which is this meeting should be live streamed. That live stream should be actively distributed to the community. That live stream should remain accessible after the meeting is over. Mm-hmm. We've made some progress on the first part of that. Last year it was live streamed. <laughs> I really hope that it is again this year. Um, but it was live streamed on Zoom. Uh, and there's no recording made as far as I'm aware, and it's not something you can go back and watch. That's a mistake. Amta should fix that. I know they won't, but Amta should fix that, and it should be just a recording that's up on YouTube, and anyone should be able to go back and watch it. But at the very least, I am hopeful that they will live stream it again. People can tune in on Zoom, and I am quite confident, to toss in a little plug here, that our Discord, uh, we had just launched it before the board meeting last year, and it was very, very active. We're already starting to discuss this agenda in there. So I think there's going to be robust discussion about the board meeting. Uh, Drew, any other thoughts about the board meeting generally before we launch into some of these specific motions? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that this point about transparency, we make it every year, and we sometimes crawl forward a little bit. Um, sometimes we take a few steps back. But I do I do think that last year it being live streamed was really, really nice. I really enjoyed it. It was a way for everyone to get to participate. Um, I, I thought it was really successful last year. I agree that there's no reason to take it down afterwards. I think that there's just a large amount of the community that has no idea how to access this information whatsoever. And in in my perfect world, all of the contacts that have that are you know that have made contact registered with AMTA, they get an email blast um, the week or two before the board meeting and say, "Hi, the board meeting is happening in this location. If you can't be with us in person, here is a link to the live stream that we're going to have." And then once it's done, they send another email with, "This is the link to that board meeting, so you can listen to the discussions that we had on all of these different things." I will say that last year was the first time I ever got to take part in um, or listen in on a board meeting. And I found it very interesting and very informative. I also think that to to be fair to AMTA, I think that it would honestly help them a lot with some of the issues that they have with being kind of this mysterious shadow body that people don't really know. And, and they're kind of these mysterious people that uh, you never really get to see. and. I think that it would do a lot for people to kind of get to see them all interacting together, to see them having a discussion, to be able to participate in that discussion. I think it would just do a lot to take some of the mystery away from it. And I, I just can't imagine why anyone would think that's a bad thing. So I'm glad that we touched on this. We will continue to until um, AMTA finally reaches a point where it is truly transparent on this. But until then, hopefully it's at least live streamed. Yep. I wholeheartedly agree with with everything that you're saying you're saying i just think it makes a lot of sense and and i hope that at least some of the the steps forward uh that we've taken will continue to be uh to be done and 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 i'm confident you know based on what i've heard that they will so uh with that said we're going to launch into discussing some of the proposed motions now i think most of you are familiar with this, but but the way the process works is over the course of the last several months, people both on the board and off have submitted motions to AMTA. They've referred them out to different committees. Those committees can either table the motions, which we'll, <laughs> we'll get to one particular tabled motion a little later, um, or they can advance them 
with a recommendation. Typically, it's advanced with either no recommendation or a positive recommendation. And all the almost all the motions we'll discuss today have been advanced with one of those two recommendations, and we'll get a vote at the board meeting. And Ben, we should we should maybe explain that if something is advanced with a positive recommendation, it is almost always getting passed to the board meeting. I, I think that I can count on my hand how many times something has been a, a positive recommendation and then not passed, or it might get passed with an amendment. If there's no recommendation, it's it's usually not passed. I mean, I, I feel like usually no recommendation is pretty discouraging. There are some times when it will be, but it that's usually a bad sign. And then if something's tabled, it's effectively shut down. The tabled, it's not going to get talked about. You know, that, that's that's off the table for, uh, you know, <laughs> to use the, the terminology, but it's not going to get discussed if it's tabled. So just so people understand that when they're looking at it, if they're like, whoa, are they actually going to do that? Like, no, if it's tabled, it's not happening. Yeah, no, you mean to tell me that that uh, friend of the pod, Devin Holstead's motion completely restructuring AMTA is unlikely to, to pass is what you're saying? <laughs> you know, I, I think that some people may not want to do that. <laughs> um, no, but I think that your your point is a really, really good one. Uh, and it's completely true, having been to the last several board meetings, which also I should mention, I've been to the last several board meetings. I'm not going this year because I don't really want to. Um, so I'm not going this <laughs> you year. You don't but... want to pay a bunch of money out of your pocket to go someplace and talk about mock trial when you could just do it from the comfort of your own home on a podcast? Are you crazy? Well, I may I may be, but I'm also not going to uh, fly to Madison, Wisconsin uh, this year to beautiful Madison. And I'm sure I'd have a lovely time. But I'm not going to be there in person. If there's a live stream, I'm sure I'll be you know be tuning in and watching it. Uh, but I think that your clarification is very good, and it absolutely matches with my experience having been to several of these meetings. That yes, often things are amended, but if they've been advanced positively, they'll probably pass. So the first several motions that we're going to discuss, we're going to kind of discuss them together, and that's budget three, four, five, and six. Um, budget three and four are increasing host stipends, specifically re regionals host stipends um, and nationals host stipends. Does it address orcs stipends? I um, actually don't think it does. I think maybe those were raised recently. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think those were raised more recently, if I recall correctly. But it re increases regional stipends from thirty two fifty to forty five and increases NCT stipends from twenty five thousand to thirty thousand. In response to that, um, it increases a number of different registration and other fees. Um, the registration fee increases, bo both fee increases are not effective if it were to pass until not this coming season, but the season after. Um, the base fee that everybody pays goes from 450 to 500. The first team and every subsequent team increases by 25. Um, Orcs goes from 250 to 300. Nationals goes from 500 to 550. Uh, and then IP for invitationals. Many of you may not have experienced this fee, but if you host an invitational and you don't don't host for AMTA, you currently have to pay six dollars per team per round. Um, they're trying to increase that to eight dollars per team per round. Uh, so basically, the the logic to summarize it a little bit is they're trying to make up some of the revenue that would come out in increased payments out to regionals and NCT hosts in addition to the to the orc stipends. Uh, Drew, I have several thoughts on this, but I've obviously been talking for a minute. So I'll sort of kick it to you first. What's your reaction to this sort of cluster of budget motions? Okay, so first things first, I think that giving more money to the regional hosts and the national hosts are a, at its core, good thing. 
I think that pretty much anyone who's hosted a regionals or hosted a nationals will tell you that the stipends they get does not come close to covering the cost of hosting this event. Um, there's a massive problem. I'm going to fair to say it's a problem in AMTA right now that there are a ton of invitational hosts and not enough regional hosts. And that's because you make a lot more money being an invitational host. You also have a lot more control over your tournament and it's just, you know, generally I think people prefer to host invites. Um, you know, there's the aspect of you're prepping for regionals and you don't actually want to have to worry about running a regional. Um, anyway, there's a massive problem there. And I think that trying to get more money to those teams, to those programs that are willing to host is a good thing. Again, I don't think it's going to cover the actual cost that is required to host, but at least it comes closer. I also will note that in the rationale, they specifically mentioned that they're going to be reducing the number of regionals from 32 to 28 regional sites. Um, my my assumption based on that is that that means that the size of those regionals is probably going to go up tremendously. Um, I think if people remember a few years ago, we used to have the you know 30 team regionals, and last year we haven't had we didn't have any that were bigger than like. 26 or so. I don't think we had any that were that big. Maybe I'm wrong. Someone will probably tell me there was some random West Coast tournament that was really big. But um, I don't think there were any that were, that were even close to as big as some of the old, you know, eight bid regionals with 32 teams. Um, and I think that this reduction in the number of regional sites might mean that we're going back up and up in size of regionals, which I think that, you know, more teams coming means it's going to cost more to put it on. I think it's fair to try to raise that stipend. So I, I think, again, good idea at its core. Ben, I'm sure you'll probably have more thoughts on this as someone that has hosted, but I don't know that this is making that much of a dent or making that much of a change, but you know, something is better than nothing on the reg fees. Like I have very mixed feelings about raising reg fees. I will say this, and I I alluded to this before. You will notice that the reg fees change and the imitational licensing fee change are both not going to happen until the 2024-2025 season. So it will not affect this year whatsoever. It will only affect the year after. And this is something that we directly talked about the last time they raised these types of fees on teams because people have already started doing their budgets. And to pass something like this now is throwing off a lot of teams' budgets and what they're expecting to spend, how much they were expecting and it's happening too late in the process. So by giving them a whole year, I do think that if you're going to raise fees, this is the way to do it, where people now have a year of notice that, hey, fees are going to be going up. You need to allocate that in your budgeting in the future. And for you know whatever you're going to be doing, keep that in mind. I don't love that we're raising reg fees. Uh, you know, it's really tough for me. I think this is a whole discussion that we could probably have um, just talking about the financial burden that's placed on people in mock trial. Um, you know, I have some mixed feelings just because I, I, I wish we didn't make the bar for entry even higher for teams to participate in this activity. I think that there are a lot of programs that, you know, they have to come up with these fees from their students, um, from donations. And, and anytime you're raising fees on them, it makes it harder for them. On the other hand, I understand that we want to be able to pay the hosts more and compensate them properly. And I, I can understand, you know, that money needs to come from somewhere and reg fees are the main way that AMTA gets money. So I definitely have mixed feelings about it. I wish that we could just materialize money and that that would be fine. And, you know, 
Maybe AMTA needs to be willing to take on more, uh, you know, sponsorships and get law firms to sponsor more stuff. But you know, as we discussed at nationals, you know, there there are ramifications to that as well. So it's it's not a perfect system, but um, I think that at the very least, I'm really happy that they are waiting a year to enact this. Yeah. So I have a couple thoughts on on this. I, I largely agree with what you were saying. Uh, definitely agree about waiting a year. Um, and I don't. The, the the stipend and increases are fine. You know, forty five hundred dollars is still not sufficient to entice enough teams to host a regional. Having hosted a regional, um, but it's a step in the right direction. You know, I think if that was six thousand, that's when you start to get in the conversation of okay, you you might be able to make as much money or close to as much money on a regional as you would on an invitational. Um, you know, I do have concerns about every time you increase a fee everything else gets more expensive, right? Because those teams have to make up that money somewhere. But I, I don't have a huge problem with that. I think the NCT fee increase is a little silly. Like that's like a tiny amount of money grant in the grand scheme of things, but it, it's fine. I don't have a huge you know, set of thoughts on that. The one that I actually want to talk about for a moment and I have the most concern over is the, the IP, the invitational licensing fee. Um, I don't like that fee to begin with, like just the fact that that fee exists, I don't like, but I understand why it exists. Here's my fundamental point on this. And, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this before this episode. So every year, AMTA's position on invitationals gets sillier and sillier because now when you think about the way that invitationals works, right? So AMTA provides to, to their invitational hosts one thing, a case. That is it, right? You can pay them to give you ballots, um, but that's it. You get a case from AMTA and, you know, I, I, I should say that there's a, you know, you can access some free resources on their website related to like, you know, charts and, and hosting manuals that are five years outdated and things like that. But, you know, they don't they don't provide anything else in return for this fee. But everything that AMTA gets from invitationals goes up pretty consistently right now. They're getting money. They're trying to get more money. Um, they get critical data that is essential to their success and writing a successful case. Um, now they're doing advisory opinions. And so they're getting all of this information in order to provide advisory opinions. And you know they're getting this tremendous amount of information that they require of teams and request of teams. And in return, you know, they're providing very little. You could make an argument that the advisory opinions themselves are something that AMTA is giving us, but I think that's almost like a separate process. So here's my point. Right. If this is going up, if it, the registration fees is one thing, right, you pay a registration fee and you pay a regionals fee, knowing and understanding that that will be reinvested into you attending a tournament. So if AMTA is now charging us more money for the for the IP fee, what are we getting in return? Right. Is the case going to be better? I mean, you know, the cases are pretty good. So so that's not me complaining about the cases, but I want to know what we're getting in return. And that brings me to my my last point I want to make on this, which is, you know, my first thought was like, well, what could we be getting in return besides a case? And my thing is, this is why we need to expect more from AMTA. You know what we could be getting in return if they're charging us more for this? AMTA could put together a focus group of people who judge mock trial rounds and try three different versions of a judge's presentation and see which one is most effective to get across essential concepts, right? Would that cost money? Yes, it could come from the increase in money that they're about to get from our IP fee. So I guess my fundamental point is the registration fees thing is like 
apples to apples, right? It's like you pay more for registration, you pay more for regionals. And in response, the regionals hosts, the Orcs Nationals hosts gets more money. Great. Using the IP fee, increasing the IP to try to make up some of that revenue. I don't buy that. I don't like that. I think that if we're going to pay to host invitationals, AMTA needs to provide direct return on investment in some way that benefits invitational hosts and teams that are attending invitationals. So that's my main point on it. Ultimately, it's they're pretty small increases. I don't have a huge problem with any of them, but I think that that this the way that we continue this farce that AMTA is not now deeply involved in invitationals is just kind of silly and we just need to give it up. One thing I'll, I'll say on this, and I definitely hear your point. I think that in honesty, Ben, I don't really feel like I need a, a quid pro quo for the licensing fee. And I, in all honesty, I sort of view it and I, I'm pretty confident that Amta views it this way too, that it's almost like a further it's another carrot versus stick. Like they're trying to stick the people that are doing invitationals and trying to give more carrots to the regional host. They're just trying to push as many people in the direction of hosting a regionals for them instead of hosting an invite. Um, I get, I, I do totally get your point and I think it's fair. And I do think of course we should expect more from AMTA. Um, I don't necessarily think, I think that maybe to your point, the licensing fee isn't a good way to get that money. And I'll just say, I'll say this on this note. I think that the problem with raising the licensing fee is that teams that host invites are doing it because they need to make money and they need to make money, not so they can keep it, but so that they can go and compete so that they can travel, so they can pay for hotels, so that they can pay for whatever else their team needs to be able to compete in this activity. There is not a single program I am aware of that hosts an invitational fee and they're like, yeah, like whoop-dee-doo, like we just keep the money. We're just like trying to make an extra buck. Like, no, not a thing. And the programs that don't host an invite either have the money that they need, don't need the money um and they're they like they're not trying to to do more things they, they're like fine or they don't even have the the ability to host an invite to generate more money like i, I sort of think that like I, I i agree that that if we need more money i'd rather it come from other places again i'd rather it come from sponsorships or or other other ways of getting money that isn't taking it from the teams that are just frankly trying to compete and, and one last note i'll make on this I think that when we look at, oh, $6 per team per round to $8 per team per round, it doesn't sound like that much of an increase, but just to give these numbers a little bit more meaning, it's per team per round. So if you do the math for a 24 team tournament, which I think is pretty average or standard, um, with four rounds at $6 per team, that costs you $576 in terms of your licensing fee. It's now going to go up to $768. So you know, a little less than a $200 increase um, in terms of what teams will have to pay in order to use the empty case at their invite. It's definitely not nothing. I mean, over $750 just to access and use the case, you know, that's, we are now approaching a point where it costs much more to host an invite than it does to access and compete at regionals, which I think is kind of interesting to be saying that seems. Yeah, here's the last point I'll make on this and we should move on. I th I think it's such a good point. Um 
like I, I I feel a little silly to like rail on an invitational fee that's like you know doesn't apply that much. But your point is one hundred percent valid. And the thing is, this does not just impact the programs who are paying the invitational fee. And I know this because I'm literally experiencing it right now. Obviously, I'm not the head coach at UMBC anymore, but I'm still heavily involved in advising them. And we're facing massive budget cuts. And our Charm City registration fees are more expensive this year as a result of that. And also as a result of us, for a variety of reasons, not getting the benefit of the AMTA hosting discount this upcoming year. So what are we doing? We're raising our registration fees for our invitational, which means that several teams attending it will have to charge, will, you know, in turn, probably have to charge more money to ha- to to host teams at their invitationals. The, that's not AMTA's fault. Everything's more expensive. But when you when you perpetuate that cycle of raising fees, everything just continues to get more and more expensive. And obviously, this IP fee is not causing that. But I just think that I'd like us to think a little bit more about, you know, when and why we raise fees. Um, but beyond that, Drew, I don't have anything else here. And I think, you know, feel free to move us nope. forward. I, I certainly will. I will. You know, I, I just the the very, very I promise last point. Um, I think that I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that example with Charm City. I think that something that I wish we started expecting more from our regional host, from our invitational host, I think it's, it, it, it's a lot to ask of people. But, um, and I know that AMTA has gone away from this idea of like hosting a banquet or something like that. But I, I think that trying to do more to support the teams that have come whether it's providing them with breakfast in the morning, lunch in the afternoons. Like, I just think that those things, when I've gone to tournaments that do that, it's so nice. And as a non-coached program that has to figure out meals in between rounds ourselves, it definitely took a ton of weight off of us. And I think that if we're going to start increasing all these fees and expectations, I would, you know, maybe going back to your point, Ben, maybe can we just get something back for it? And like, I think that, the reality is that it, it's not all that difficult to to plan a bunch of food for people and and have it ready for them. And I think that it would, it, you know, at least then I feel like people are getting something back for it. So anyway, I, I think that we could, like I said, have a discussion about the budgets and logistics of completing this activity forever, but we don't want to have that podcast today. So we're going to continue on in our agenda and we're going to move to the CIC. Now, the CIC had a bunch of different proposals. I I think that a lot of them are continuing to codify sort of general understandings of things. But one that I think we really wanted to highlight was both 01 and 02. And these effectively changed the language that the rules talk about um, inventions. So in the past, there was this phrasing of egregious inventions and um, O2 discusses reasonable inferences. And instead, we are kind of changing the language from reasonable inferences to permissible inferences, and basically just removing this egregious invention language, um, and just calling it an improper invention. So now, instead of egregious, it's improper, and instead of reasonable, it's permissible. And I think there are a lot of reasons why AMTA is doing this. I think that um, for the longest time, I think, you know, both Ben and I, we've, we've definitely talked about this and I think a lot of teams have come across this issue, but 
what is reasonable, what is egregious are very vague terms that, uh, you know, are kind of have a lot of different meaning to the individual. I mean, I think that what I think is reasonable might be different from what Ben thinks is reasonable, might be different from what the board thinks is reasonable, might be different from what any of you listeners think is reasonable. And so that inherently creates a problematic standard. And the the argument that you see come up so often in response to, you know, oh, so-and-so invented is, oh, well, I think it's reasonable. I think that this is a reasonable interpretation of that. And so I think getting rid of that language and changing it to permissible does not change the vagueness of what, you know, what is permissible, but at least it makes it a little bit more cut and dry. And AMTA can start saying, here is what makes something permissible. And there's no more interpretation of, well, what do I think that means versus what do you think that means? There's just what it is. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a better standard to be using. And then similarly, I think that egregious, um, I think that like, egregious kind of had the same problem of like it, it made people sort of view things as like oh well like what how far does it have to go to make it egregious and and now we're just saying look like if it's an improper invention it's an improper invention you know we're defining improper invention differently like that's that's what the focus should be on um i, I know that there were a number of other cic uh rules but ben just get your thoughts really quickly on those two yeah, so I like both of these changes. These, um, according to the agenda, were both proposed by Judge Toby Heightens on behalf of the CIC, and I like both of them. I'll explain why real quick. So CIC 01, as Drew was just explaining, re references specifically Rule 6.28, which is titled Scoring Performances, Performance of the Participants, and specifically Scoring Witnesses. All it does, it doesn't actually remove the calcul calculation of an egregious invention of fact from the punishment phase of this conversation. But all it does is clarify the language of this rule to say an invention of fact is an invention regardless of whether or not it is egregious or not. Whether or not it is egregious is important when the CIC is deciding whether to warn or sanction a team. But it is not important on the threshold question. It's essentially relevance versus 403. I think that's fine, right? Like something can be impermissible. Something can be non-egregious but still against the rules and i think this clarifies that i don't think it literally changes anything i think it's fine i feel similarly about cico2 um drew and i were discussing this off mic and, and basically the way i see it and the way that drew was just saying it is you know something is either either permissible or it's not but permissible is a directional word right you hear it and you think okay now I must determine how does this entity define the word permissible, and that directs, uh, as as this rule does, it directs people to Rule 7.21, which contains our long and arguably vague and weird but existing definition of invention of fact, and that still has significant language related to reasonable and you know to reasonable uh, invention, reasonable inference, and all those things. That is still the standard. But in directing people um, through these rules, right, it it sends people to the correct rule, um, and then and in that rule states that it is a permissible instead of a reasonable uh, inference. So I'm fine with both of these. It literally doesn't change the substantive standard in any way. It just uses different language, and I think that Judge Heightens and those others on the CIC who you know came up with these, I I think it's good. I think the stated rationale makes sense. I have no issues with both of these, and I 
think they will likely pass. Yeah, I, I agree. And I appreciate your your clarifications on those, Ben. You know, again, I think that to everyone listening to this, if you, for whatever reason, are actually listening to our board meeting episode, I really encourage you to to like have these up next to you while you're listening to this pod. If you're not in the car or something and can do that, I, I think it's worth looking over the actual agenda and, and seeing what it is that we're talking about, because we're obviously trying to summarize it for people. But if you want the more in-depth rationale that exists, and I think everyone should really try to read it, because I think that they're often well-written and, and give a good explanation as to why this is happening. Um, like I said before, there were a bunch of other CIC changes as well. Not going to cover all of them. Um, I'll just highlight a few. I'm really glad that they're taking out that this is uh, the ethical violation component of it. I think we've seen that happen a few times where this is called an ethical violation. And I don't know. I just I think that it so often is stemming from a misunderstanding that it feels weird to call that an ethical violation. And I think that it should probably be something separate. Um, also, um, the CIC created their advisory opinions this year. I think everyone found them very, very helpful. I know I did. I'm glad that they did it. And they've decided um, pursuant to rule uh, their uh, rule 06 that they're going to continue to create those advisory opinions. And that will be an ongoing thing. Another thing that I think we discussed last year and we're like, this should just keep happening. And I'm really, really happy to see that they're going to continue to do it. Um, so really, really happy with that. Um, I honestly think that compared to last year and even the last few years, there's a lot less like we're changing the definitions of all these things and, and it's really going to affect things. I, I don't think anything too crazy is happening here. A lot of the language around the guilty portrayals rule or what makes something recanting an affidavit, like those were all really things that we we all knew and understood in practice and it's just being formalized into how the rule is actually written. Um, it, it was often things where we just had special instructions that were like, this is considered an affidavit under rule, whatever. And now they're like, look, it always is like, we're not going to just keep writing special instructions. Like let's just make a rule that, you know, when you have an interrogation, you cannot break that the, the rule, the statements that you gave under oath at that time. Um, Nothing too crazy here, but Ben, I'll, I'll toss it to you just in case there's anything else you wanted to highlight. Nope. I agree with what you're saying. Very glad that advisory opinions are continuing. I hope that we, you know, I think this year's case committee miscalculated once or twice on what should be an advisory opinion versus what should just be an in-case in fix. I think they tried a few in-case fixes that could have just been solved more easily with advisory opinions, but that's going to take time to kind of get used to this new thing. So very happy that that's sticking around. And I agree with everything else. Um, you know, th there's a little bit of a tweak on the guilty portrayals rule. I know that there's a lot of heated discussion on that rule. And some of that I think is, is, is valuable, but this, the, the very minor change to the language I think is, is perfectly fine. So I don't really have anything else to add. I think that, like you said, compared to last year, these are fairly minor changes aside from those first two. Great. Well, why don't you take us on to our next group? Sounds good. So there are two motions on the agenda from the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Um, both of them are by um, our friend of the pod, Devin Holstead. Um, and he was both active. Of Devin was writing rules left and right. 
hey, look, you know, that, that he's working hard, doing doing his love it, doing his part. We appreciate doing that. the Lord's really work. Do. And these are both excellent motions. DNI one is a motion uh, to amend the AMTA rules specifically to require teams to place the gender pronouns form, which was added last year, with the judge's ballot so that the judges uh, can review that form prior to trial and have it throughout trial. DNI 2 is a motion to require an addition to the judge's PowerPoint that states that judges will receive a pronoun form and to explain what it is. I think both of these are excellent motions. I am not going to speculate as to why they were advanced with no recommendation. I hope that it is just sort of some sort of technical reason, um, such as I'm not necessarily sure that it requires a rules change to change the judge's presentation. Perhaps that's the reason why these were advanced with no recommendation. Um, These are both no brainers, like just things that we should obviously do. They also, I think, fall in line with common practice. DNI 01 certainly does. There was a little bit of confusion at the beginning of the year, but by the end of the year, it was pretty much common practice to provide the gender pronouns form, you know, along with either the pretrial binder or the ballots or whatever. I think that's fine. Um, And DNI 02, obviously, I don't think it happened at AMTA tournaments, but I know at Charm City and, and many of the other invitationals that we attended that there was specific attention paid to the pronouns form. So these are like no brainers, obvious things that that AMTA should be doing. And regardless of whether these motions pass, these are things that AMTA needs to provide specific direction on because I think that they're both correct. Yeah, I'm going to say this. If for whatever reason these don't pass, I think AMTA owes the community a really long and thought out explanation as to why because i agree that these seem like they are standard practice i kind of think if we're doing these pronoun forms and not requiring them to be given to the judges like why are we doing them i mean sure it's helpful for the other team to know but like to me the whole point is that that judge doesn't misgender someone the whole round and that the judge knows why everyone's referring to someone the way that they are, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that I like adding it to the presentation because it's showing these judges, hey, this is important. This is something that we're spending time on telling you about because we want you to pay attention to it. We want you to respect it. And I I do not know why they wouldn't want to do these things. Um, it just seems extremely counterintuitive to me why we would uh, be doing that. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I would be really, really upset and shocked if this didn't get passed. And the no recommendation is definitely a red flag to me. And I will be keeping a close eye on this for sure. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback on one thing you said there really quickly, it's, it's such a good point that like, like, why is this form existing if we're not telling judges about it? I can imagine a scenario in which a judge who, you know, has every good faith intention to make sure this is an inclusive environment and wants to make sure that everybody is referred to by the proper gender and the proper honorific and to do everything right and simply just does not know that the pronoun form is sitting there and doesn't know what it what it is and then perhaps does not have the necessary information. Now that judge should, you know, as as all people should, should be careful not to assume, you know, people's gender and pronouns and honorifics. But, you know, that judge may very well have had good intentions and want to do the right thing and just simply not know that the form exists. So requiring people to say that the form exists just makes so much sense to me. And I'm going to assume that in some form or another that that change will be made. I certainly hope that it will. 
And that's all I've got here, Drew, if you want to keep us moving. Yeah, I, I just I, I want to say that I, I just think it's it's deeply disrespectful to the the competing students that you wouldn't encourage the judges to look at this. Like the, the whole point of us passing this last year was to acknowledge like, hey, you know, we want our community to be more inclusive. We want to acknowledge that people are non-binary, that people may not prefer the pronouns that they present with. Like if we're not going to encourage judges to do that, I, I'm just baffled as to like why we are doing it in the first place. Like I think we should. And I just, it, it, again, I, I think that this is an easy one for us to spiral with. And I think in all likelihood, honestly, they're just going to pass it. Like hopefully they'll just pass it and we yeah. can just, we can just move on. We look, um, we would never spiral on something, oh, but God. I you know. vehemently agree with you. Keep okay. us moving. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. All right. So next we're moving on to the EC, um, Oh, uh, five. And so just to be clear, EC is the executive committee. Um, it had a couple of different, um, rules that it, or motions, sorry, that it offered. Um, some were just kind of formalizing of the CIC roles, but um, the one that we wanted to highlight was again, 05, which adds a comment period from the community um, and basically gives more time for comments to be made um, that impact both motions of the board meeting. Um, I, I think that, you know, going back to our conversation we had about transparency before, I just think that like, of course, this is a good thing. Like we want to give people more time to actually make comments. I think that funnily enough, I think there's sort of an irony to, you know, we're, we're talking about this right now so that we can get it out there so people know about it and can have this opportunity to actually give feedback to EMTA. Um, I was a little bit upset that there wasn't more posted about, hey, the agenda has been published. If you want to give feedback, now is the time to do it. I don't, um, I, I don't understand why that isn't pushed more the same way that when a new case is dropped, when, um, when case changes have happened, like it's, it's on the front page of their website. And on this, the only way you can find it is if you go to the board of directors tab and hit the agenda button, um, which I just don't think many people know to do. And I, I just wish that they made that easier. So I'm, I'm glad they're adding a longer comment period. I'm glad that we're trying to get more, uh, you know, input from the community. There are also some changes that just, you know, make the board meeting run a little bit more smoothly. But um, I just, I think that as much as I'm trying to pat Amped on the back for doing something good, there's definitely more that could be done that would make it even better. And I'm not, I, I don't want to, uh, I'm not trying to be a perfectionist that's the enemy of the good. But I don't want to say, okay, this is enough. Good job. You did it. I do think there's a lot more that needs to be done in order to improve transparency wholeheartedly. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, when you were describing that, the first thing I thought was, ladies and gentlemen, we got them. Um, like not, <laughs> not exactly. But uh, no, in all seriousness, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Just a couple quick points on this. A little bit of inside baseball here on some of this motion, which was written by friend of the pod, Jonathan Woodward. Um, I think it's it's a very, very well-written motion with almost universally excellent changes. Some of these changes, if you've ever been to or watched an AMTA board meeting, it can be miserably tedious, like amendments to amendments to amend the amendment to go from this to that. And sometimes it sucks. <laughs> sometimes you're like, man, I do not care about where this comma is placed. I want to go eat that mediocre sandwich. Like, please, can we finish this up? Um, and I think that this by changing a few ways that AMTA does things, 
will allow that to hopefully be limited so that the discussion at the board meetings can be as substantive as possible. And then this also nails down a very specific review and comment period so that the motions that are actually published in the eventual agenda are the substantive motions that will then be debated and passed and that they are the product of both feedback and discussion within the board, but also feedback and discussion from outside of the board. It It is something that just makes a tremendous amount of sense. And I think just, I just don't, I don't think there's any reason not to do this. It was advanced with a positive recommendation. It's an EC motion, so I wouldn't be shocked to see it go into, into exec- executive session because I think um, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, but having read the AMTA bylaws, I think some of this affects the bylaws possibly. So I wonder if they're going to have to mess with that a little bit, but this should pass. It's good. I support it. Uh, and that's pretty much all I have to say about that. There you have it, folks. Ben Garma supports it. <laughs> there you go. And and Drew Evans praised AMTA's transparency. I did. Um, you know, Look at this. Yeah. They're so if you're playing, sides. you know, what the hell is mo- the mock review on bingo? Like you're just you know, a couple of things away and I'm not going to speculate on whether what other squares are on that board. Well, they already got case Western in there. So hey, there you go. And that's the middle. Yale that's now. the free spot. <laughs> all um, right, well, keep us going, Ben. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. So I'm just going to cover there's um, a couple of other ones remaining. I'm going to summarize them real quick so we can get to one or two tabled motions. Rules 01 allows cell phones and airplane mode for timekeeping. Cool. Great. We should do that. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, TAC 07 uh, is actually one that I want to talk about for just a moment. It has to do with AMTA representatives and judge assignments. So I'm going to just take people behind the scenes a little bit because I've been fortunate enough to both host and rep several, several years in a row now. It's a very interesting give and take where as a host or as a rep, you arrive at a tournament. Typically, you, you might know your host, you might not. But your host, uh, who may or may not have teams competing at that regional, typically knows all the judges and has a lot of information that's useful for you. You'll have a lot of that in written form, but you know, a lot of times hosts have information like this person's a great presider or yeah, that guy's a little wacky. Um, and that's really useful information to know. Sometimes though, understandably the empty reps will delegate in part or in full the host to help do the actual judge assignments because the host has that information. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as a host. Sometimes I assisted in doing the judge assignments because I, I am to rep, so I know how it works and I know my judges and, and know which ones I think would do a good job. And so all this does is it adds some level of um, like overview specifically for hosts who are assigning judges to their own teams. And I think that's a really, really good thing. It is a little bit of an awkward position to be in sometimes as a host helping the reps to assign judges when you've got your own teams. Obviously, I'm sure, you know, I was as fair about it as I possibly, you know, as I tried to be. I'm sure everyone else is as well. But, you know, you always want to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. And so I think that that's a good thing. Um, and then the last one I'll mention, and then I, and then Drew, I'll kick it to you, is uh, TAC 08, uh, which is a motion. I think this was re- in reference to a, a team who hosted both in invitational and a regional this year they sent out a survey got a bunch of information about judges distributed it to the people at their invitational but that was like partially the field at their regional but not entirely and it's a motion to basically say if you've got a bunch of information like that if you choose to send out a survey like that you need to provide it to everyone so that it's an equal playing field i think that's fine i think it's an extremely localized motion that's unlikely to happen very often if at all moving forward but may as well prevent it so it doesn't cause any problems in the future uh, Drew, before we get to the tabled motions, you know, any thoughts on those last few? 
Yeah, I think that uh, the cell phones for timekeeping is really going to change this activity at a fundamental level. So yep. everyone uh, get ready for that one. Radical um, shift. Jo- joking aside, um, yeah, I, I think that these are these all make sense to me. They're good. Like I said, I think that honestly, this is a board meeting where I didn't read through it and see anything where I was like, what? How are they doing? What are we going to do with that? So that's probably a good sign. Um, I, I think that what you said about the, the judge assignments makes total sense. The judge paradigms, like I would love it if that was a more common thing, if more teams, um, pulled their judges and got a sense of what that judge liked, what they were looking for and gave that out to teams. I think it would be really cool. I, I do have concerns that like, I don't really think it's a great approach to like totally, have like a list of like what is this judge like and not like and and be matching it up and you know trying to change everything on the fly that may not be totally reasonable to expect of people but i i do think that getting a sense of what judges like and don't like is is only a, a helpful thing and if more people want to do it then it should be given access to everyone so that can't be a bad thing yep i i totally agree with that um i i think that your points are valid and i think with that there's there's a tabled motion oh, here I think it's it's um hold on let me just let me just get it's, to it. I here. can tell you it's it's page 27 of okay, the overall PDF. 27. It's by Jahangir on behalf of D I think it's Evans. Is that how Yeah, how that's it's said? that's how you pronounce it. Um, okay, that's correct. Just, yeah. <laughs> um so Drew had a had a table motion so Drew tell us about that. All right. So first of all, um for those that are following along at home, it might get confusing when you get down to the consent calendar, but go to page 27 of the PDF that is appendix D the tabled motions um again tabled motions probably not going to happen i'm definitely not sour about this but um yeah these are the rest of the things that we're discussing are probably not going to happen but definitely worth looking at is just things people are talking about and worth discussing so the the motion that i proposed um is really something that i've thought for a long time like i don't understand why we're not doing but the basic gist of it is that i think that the final round that gets recorded at nationals should be given to all teams without a paywall of like the 25 or 35, whatever dollars it is to get access to that final round recording. And there are a few reasons why I think it's a problem, but the biggest one that I'll give you is that as a new team that just, just joins mock trial, just joins AMTA, they come in and they have access to nothing. They have no idea what a round looks like. They have I mean, they just don't actually have access to any type of film library whatsoever. If you wanted to go and watch some final rounds, they would need to pay that fee for every single one of them. And let's be real. Established programs do not have that problem. They have massive film libraries of all the film that they have over the years. Let's just be very real about the fact that there's a huge pirating problem with the final rounds. If they're live streamed, people are going to pirate them. They get links. Those are distributed. Like it just happens. Everyone knows that it happens. Ampta knows that it happens. Ampta probably makes pennies on the dollar uh, realistically on this final round recording. So I wanted to give them an out and the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, if you really think that this is a cash cow that you want to milk as much as you can, then just put it as part of the registration fee. I said not exceeding $10, but I said that it should really be based on however much the budget committee assesses would be needed to offset the revenue gained from these final round recordings. I just cannot imagine that that is more than 
probably two, three, maybe five dollars per team to offset this. Um, and then Ampta still gets their money, and everyone has access to every single final round that has ever happened that Ampta has in perpetuity as long as they're paying reg fees. I just think it makes sense. I think then it's more equal for everyone. I think that I don't really understand who loses in this situation. Um, In theory, AMTA should be getting exactly the same amount of money. And frankly, it should mean that AMTA has a more consistent revenue stream on that. And it's less based on how many random people decide to pay for this final round. I just think that in general, paying for old final rounds feels very silly feels very like just adding an unnecessary paywall that I, again, cannot imagine AMTA is actually making that much money from. So I just wanted to do something that I thought would be nice for everyone, give access to all the final rounds, to all teams, all members of this community, and hopefully give AMTA a way to do it without losing out on what potentially is a revenue stream that's meaningful to them. If it really is, then then fine, then add that fee there. Um, Look, I, I don't know why it wasn't <laughs> why it wasn't uh, at least given a, a no recommendation and going to be discussed. Uh, you know, I have my fair share of speculations that have a lot to do with the name of the author and some strong feelings that people may have. But who the hell knows? Um, maybe I'll get a good explanation from them as to why. But uh, you know, Ben, I don't know. Maybe you have some thoughts as to why <laughs> there's some massive problem with this. Yeah, I I mean, I haven't the faintest clue why it was tabled. I think that, you know, while you could have an interesting conversation about the method of accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish, what you're trying to accomplish is 1000% correct. Um, there's just some like, <laughs> if you want to watch the pre 9-11 final round on Amta's website, it costs 15 bucks. Like, you know, if you want to watch Miami V Roads from April of twenty of two thousand one on Ampta's website, it costs fifteen bucks, and and you were actually under on your figure. All the last ten years of final round videos are forty bucks to buy or twenty bucks to rent. Which like, who's renting these? Like, just what? That's not the whole purpose is to be able to go back and watch them multiple times, whatever. So, I think Ampta needs to step up and make a major change in this area figure out how to make it work to the extent that this is some major revenue stream, which I am extraordinarily skeptical about, but obviously I'm wildly speculating because we haven't the faintest clue how much, if anything, Ampta makes from these. Like, sure, figure out how to make up that revenue. That's fine. But I totally agree with you. Like, Ampta, and, and I will say as a member of the New School Mentorship Committee, like, I know that Ampta has been willing to provide resources to new schools. And so I think... I'm guessing that if a new school came to AMTA and asked for help getting access to a final round, I'm, I think they would be able to get it either through AMTA or just sort of on the side. But it shouldn't have to be that way. It should be a lot like easier. Just, but why is it? Why can't it just be formalized? Like, what, yeah, yeah, what right. is the it, it just I mean, to me, like, look, like, do we really think that they're making that much money on this? And if so, fine, then just let everyone share it. Then I just it it, it doesn't make sense to me and one thing that i just i do want to highlight is that to me there's also an aspect of who's paying for this Mm -hmm. in that let's be very real i think that most teams that have a budget at a bare minimum get their registration fee paid for and i think that it's like i mean i i could be wrong and you know 
I'm, I'm sure that there is someone out there listening who's like, well, my school doesn't pay for our reg fees. But I think that most schools will at a minimum pay for the registration fee to compete in this activity. If that all of a sudden, I mean, look, it's going up by $25 this year and schools are going to likely not you know, have much to say about it. If it goes up instead of $25 by $30, I don't really think teams are going to care or I don't think schools are going to care. I don't think they're going to be like, whoa, 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 like that extra $5, like, well, now we're not willing to pay that. Like they're going to pay it. It's the registration fee, like, of course. But when you make it a separate, like, I want to purchase the final round recording, that makes it something that pretty much no school is going to be like, yeah, let's pay for that. Like they're going to make you as an individual buy it or someone in the program buy it. And I just think that like, why are we making individuals pay for this thing? Like, it's just not to me a realistic, like, I, I, I think that it's, it feels very silly to ask people to be paying a lot of money out of pocket for something that really should just be a resource that all programs should have and be able to use and learn from. And, you know, if, if AMTA claims to have this mission of, you know, giving access to and teaching people about mock trial, I think that one of the best ways to learn about mock trial is to watch good mock trial. And why should it be held against your program that, you know, you just existed for the last few years or just more recently and you don't have access to as much film? Like I just I I kind of will will kind of die on this hill that that it makes no sense to not give them access to it. And to your point, Ben, if it is being given access to some of them, like there are a lot of people that don't know to ask, that are afraid to ask, that don't want to, yep. that that wish they could have it and don't know that, oh, maybe if I just said, hey, like, can I watch this final round? Like, will you give it to me for free? My school won't pay for it. That Amta would probably say yes. But if that's the case, then let's just make that a formal thing. Anyway, I'm pissed. Yeah. Whatever. No, look, my last point on, my, on this is I think the the message behind your motion is like everything that AMTA is supposed to stand for and why I would have liked to see it advanced is perhaps there are people on the AMTA board who have issues with the methodology, but that's a conversation that would be worth having so that then we could sit around and say, well, how can we accomplish this? Maybe we want to keep some of our more recent final rounds paywalled for one reason or another, but can we task the new school mentorship committee with identifying you know, some of our top programs who are willing to put up film from other rounds? You know, if you want, if you're a new program listening to this podcast, go to YouTube, search Tufts versus Wesleyan mock trial. You'll get to see a fantastic round. I just checked. It's still up um, like more of that needs to be available. So I think your point is totally valid, Drew. And I, I hope that this is something that AMTA's board will consider in the future because paywalling stuff like, look, I get it. AMTA needs to make money, but paywalling stuff that could be useful resources for new schools that I just don't buy that that's the way that AMTA should be trying to make a bunch of revenue. Yep. And I mean, look, I agree. I, I can't imagine why they didn't want to proceed with this. And look, to your point, maybe maybe there are tweaks that can be made. I wasn't trying to write this as like the most perfectly written uh, you know, motion of all time, but like let's let's talk about it. Let's let's do something on this because the current system is clearly not the best. And I wish that there was at least some discussion as to why. And I will say that as from the perspective of someone who is a non-board member writing a, a motion, I mean, Sam is great and I appreciate him and he was very supportive throughout this, gave me some edits and helped me with writing it. But 
it it is a little bit frustrating that there isn't a you know a email an explanation or just some sort of like an acknowledgement of hi we've decided to table your motion and this is why um i just i i think that i would have appreciated that um and and i will tell you all that it didn't happen um i learned about this when when sam told me but uh that's you know i i just don't think that is a a good method for that and it just to me feels very discouraging um to someone that's not going to be at the board meeting for someone who isn't on the board and for someone who wanted to do something, frankly, that was just trying to help the community. And I'm now being told no, and we're not going to tell you why. And there's a chance that it's not live streamed, So you won't even get to be there to bring it up. And that doesn't feel great. But I know there were a bunch of other tabled motions, and I'm sure other people felt similarly about those. And I know there were a few that we wanted to highlight. So Ben, I'll kick it to you if there are a few tabled motions that uh, we wanted to chat about. The only other one that I wanted to mention, partially because it's, I think it's funny, but partially because I think it's a really, really good point, is uh, CIC 11, which is a motion, again, by Devin Holstead, um, to amend the invention of fact rule and uh, Devin's stated rationale. So so the it adds a third point to 4A, which is the definition, and it says it shall not be an improper invention if a witness acknowledges that they are unaware of a specific fact if that fact is not mentioned in their affidavit. This rule should not allow any witness to claim that the absence of a specific fact in their affidavit means that such fact does not exist. And the rationale specifically states this rule is meant to legislatively overturn the CIC's finding at the 2023 National Championship Tournament that it was an improper invention for a witness to acknowledge that they were unaware of any appeal taken by Aubrey Gold. Here is my only reason I want to bring this up. I do not think this motion should pass. I think it is the correct decision for this motion to be tabled. However, this is akin to our 2019 national final round episode in that as far as i'm aware this motion from devin holstad is the first amta writing of any sort that we have gotten explaining the rationale for this for the warning that was given by the cic at nationals we knew about it because people in our discord knew about it that's the only reason that this wasn't the first time that i'm hearing about this and that drew you're hearing about this but for a lot of people you know reading the agenda this may be the first time that they've heard about that and i i think that i, I am not going to speculate uh, nor would i ever want to put words in devin's mouth i have not spoken to him in months i have no idea why he submitted this motion so do not attribute any of this to him right but it is valuable on something that i just every time i read it i think it's one of the craziest findings i it's i, I think it's so egregiously wrong i i vehemently disagree with the cic's decision on this based on the conversations we've had in our discord and i think it's a good thing that someone from amta is putting this information out there and saying hey i know this isn't going to pass but i want to make sure the community is aware as we one of the motions we haven't discussed is to continue uh in round uh cic interventions at the national at nationals again next year um and obviously it didn't play a huge role at nationals this past year but it it did in this instance it it, it there was a team who was you know warned as a result of <coughs> this particular instance and i think that devon's motion is well taken even though this is probably not the specific place to make that rule change so just wanted to highlight that because i think it's a really important thing that's kind of buried on page 29 of this pdf but is really useful information for the community to have yeah i, I just want to highlight that um this was 
I, I don't want to make this comparison lightly, but um, not to make things political, but there have been a lot of recent Supreme Court decisions that have been rather uh, frustrating to read. <laughs> and sometimes when I'm sad about the decision, I'll, I'll kind of read through parts of the dissent and I'm not yeah. a legal scholar enough to read the entire dissent, but I'll read through excerpts of it that you know I've been told that I should take a look at. And I got to say that this rationale just... It gives me the same energy as some of these <laughs> dissents in the the way that Devin wrote the rationale on yeah. this. And I just think that it's kind of like very funny and timely for me kind of reading through it. And I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm, I'm just going to read this really brief bit about it. And again, I, I encourage people that are at home, like, go ahead and take a look at it because it is a very funny rationale. It's not long, but um, he, he specifically wrote, the CIC's own ruling acknowledged that this answer was consistent with the witness's deposition testimony. This ruling broadly expands the application of our current improper invention definition in a way that is not contemplated in the current rules. Um, I, I just, I appreciate the way that he's written this. It does give me big dissent energy vibes. And I, I thought it was kind of a fun thing to read. And frankly, it made me realize, just like you said, Ben, that I'm annoyed that we haven't gotten the actual ruling on this. I would love to hear Amto's explanation for why this was deemed a improper invention that required an actual remedy in tournament. Um, I think that I I can understand like on some level that there is some sort of implication that by saying that they're unaware of something that that is implying that it does not exist. But like, I just I don't know. I think that's like what you that's like. That's what we're here to argue about. Like, I don't know. I, I just think that it's feels like a stretch to me for sure. So I would love to hear the CIC's actual rationale on that. And right now, all we have is the dissenting opinion, essentially. And uh, a dissenting opinion without a majority opinion feels very, very odd. So I hope this encourages the CIC to publish an opinion. And Devin, keep doing you, man. We love reading your stuff. Yeah, and, and I'll say my last point on it. I, I don't say, and I think Drew, you, you as well don't say, like we, we say it's funny, not because we don't think it's serious, but because there's just something humorous about like what you just identified about getting to read the dissent before we've gotten to read the majority. And the, the reason I wanted to highlight this is this is not one of those invention of fact issues that's very fact localized. This is a huge deal. Teams do this all the time. Like saying, like, implying delicately that perhaps something did not occur because a witness is not aware of whether or not or did did not or did occur is a thing that basically every program in the country does. And while I know there are some specific facts to this instance, if AMTA is going to start trying to say that doing that constitutes an invention of fact, that is going to be a really, really big deal. I don't think that's what AMTA is trying to do. I think this was I, my guess is that this was localized to the nature of the case and the fact that because this case had to do with a retrial and all that stuff that like an appeal was a huge issue. So I think that's likely the reason they did. But it to me, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the standard needs to be the same. And so I just I just wanted to say that I don't say it's funny because I don't take it seriously. I take it extremely seriously. I just think it's a really effective way of getting an opinion out there. And I, I hope that that, like you said, prompts us to be able to read the original, you know, whatever letter AMTO or, or explanation AMTO will eventually release and to have a conversation about this. To, I don't want to draw this out too much, but I just think to, to the point that you were just making, Ben, I do think that there is, to me, what this comes down to is that 
there was something missing in this case. And and I think it was a very well-written case. My hat is off to the UCLA team that did it. Um, but I think that they should have acknowledged at some point either this didn't get appealed or it did get appealed or what, what happened on appeal. And I think that my guess is that the nature of, of course, something like this should be appealed. And of course, if it was appealed, someone like the witness that uh, I'm sure was talking about it would have been aware that it had happened. And the fact that they were not aware of it really heavily implies that it wasn't. I mean, I I get it. I do get it. I think that's a flaw in the way the case was written. And I think that's part of why we probably didn't get an explanation sooner is because they don't want this to be seen as a rule. I think that we all agree that this is something that typically should be okay and was kind of a very specific fact in this case that um, kind of was missing in, in, in a problematic way. And I'll just I'll lastly say on this that I've had many discussions at the law school level about this because there are some similar rules in the law school world. And I, uh, I remember watching the Tyla final round that was UCLA versus UCLA and talking to a certain coach of that team about this exact issue that came up very specifically in their final round. Um, and I will just say that I think that uh, it, it is definitely a, a hot button issue and, and a fun one for us to be dealing with here. Yep. It's a fascinating topic. Um, well, on that note, uh, obviously the board meeting is coming up, so we'll have an opportunity to see the results of many of these motions very soon. Um, like we mentioned, we're looking forward to hopefully recording an episode soon with trial by combat champion, Travis Harper. Uh, and beyond that, you know, since we, uh, last had an episode, the rookie rumble has been announced and registration is open now. So there's lots of exciting things going on in AMTA and we're looking forward to having an opportunity to discuss all of those things. Drew, anything else to add about the board meeting generally before we wrap this episode up? Nope. I think we've covered it. Yep. I agree with you. Thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate you being with us until we are in your feed again. This has been the mock review with Ben and Drew.